Hey, it's August 27th, 2017, and this is the Supreme Leap Forward, and I'm Steven here with Kevin. Hey, how's it going? And yeah, it's been a uh, been a couple weeks since we talked to you guys, but don't worry, we got a huge show for you today. We have our biggest guest so far. We have for you today the DSA cop. Hey. <laughs> no, uh, really, we a- we actually have uh, attorney Sam Natale and Ramsey Cannon from the DSA. They're going to talk to us about the legal implications of uh, the DSA cop uh, and. <laughs> So if you've been following uh, DSA Minutia, stick around. We're also going to be talking about uh, whether or not we can uh, pardon the DSA cop the way uh, our our kind president has pardoned shitbag Joe Arpaio. Piece of shit. Okay, so we're joined by Sam Natale and Ramzan Cannon. Uh, Sam, Ramzan, what's going on? Hey, fellas. How are you doing? Doing good. Thanks for coming on the show. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be on the show. And there's can't say there's ever been a better time to be talking about what we're going to be talking about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's, Very an timely. Air, there's an air of mystery there. Uh, and so, uh, so yeah, so Sam and Ramzan, uh, they just co-wrote a, a, a good post on the DSA's NPC's removal powers uh, with respect to... Uh, the DSA cop. We're, we're gonna we're gonna be diving into uh, we're gonna be diving into some of that. Uh, but but before we we kind of get into uh, we'll go in order here. So so Sam Natalik, tell us a little bit about what you do. Uh, I'm a public defender with the Bronx Defenders up in New York, and I'm also a uh, a member of the Bronx Upper Manhattan branch of the New York City DSA. Yeah. So you, so you're doing nothing but criminal defense. Yep. Uh, I do criminal defense, and I'm also doing some um, uh, asylum and removal cases, and I also do some stuff in family court when the state is trying to take someone's baby away. Oh, that's awesome! And then Ramzan, what are what are you up to, man? Well, uh, I'm uh, based in Chicago. Um, I'm a member of the Chicago uh, Chicago DSA, the Northside branch. My legal practice is in labor and employment law, but I also do uh, land use and environmental law. I'm actually licensed in California as well. I have uh, half my practices out there, so I have my own small small shop. Brilliant. And so, uh, before we we wanted to dive in on the uh, on the Danny Fatante uh, DSA issue, uh, we wanted to first talk about sort of the the largest thing that's that's uh, in the news, other than the uh, the hurricane that I'm sort of in yeah, the middle of. <laughs> which yeah yeah, Stephen's holding tight down there. I've got some family in the Houston area as well, getting flooded out. Yeah, uh, which it's pretty which, intense. Which I guess it's worth mentioning that uh, I guess at any point my power could go out, in which case <laughs> you know, we we may not have this show. Uh, but uh, but yeah, no, I'm I'm okay here in San Antonio, but all my family Good. down in the Corpus area is also up here uh, and about to head back. So it's just kind of miserable. Uh, but uh, the other cool thing <laughs> that is uh, that is happening is, of course, uh, you know our our uh, our esteemed. Uh, leader Trump has uh, pardoned Sheriff Joe, Sheriff Joe Arpaio. Yeah, fucking festering pustule, Joe yeah. Arpaio. And so, uh, Kevin, tell us, uh, tell us a little bit about who Joe Arpaio is. Well, I mean, um, my understanding uh, from what I've uh, been able to read from some of the local media on him, he did stuff like what he uh, attempt what he was attempting to do was specifically targeting trying to round up and remove and and focus uh, enforcement efforts on uh, undocumented immigrants. But of course, what that meant in practice was he was targeting uh, Latino communities wholesale, unapologetically, and in the open. He did uh, all kinds of stuff like he he was in- intentionally trying to make jail as miserable as possible, violating all kinds of human rights by uh, his own admission. Know, by his own admission, yeah, creating uh, tent cities that he called, that he described as concentration camps, uh, tent cities where uh, prisoners would, uh, he would stick prisoners in um, in these tent cities in the desert heat, getting up to, you know, 120 degrees with uh, no air conditioning. Um, the people were dying in, um, uh, dying of heat strokes in his concentration camps. In the wintertime, uh, he wouldn't, he forbade anyone from having any, uh, uh, anything to keep warm in the wintertime. Um, people were were dying in the in the cold as well. People kept dying in his tents for unexplained reasons. Uh, some some uh, were were explained reasons. There's you know uh, uh, jailers who nearly 
uh, broke the neck of a paraplegic guy because he <laughs> had the temerity to ask for a catheter. Um, he did all uh, all kinds of shit. Um, I mean, the uh, hilarious thing to me is that he wasn't even convicted of those offenses, which just mm-hmm. kind of shows you how the, the court system works that like, oh, no, you can do all that. That's fine. What we got convicted of was disobeying a court order by a federal court judge um, during a challenge to the the. Uh, this sort of removal gulags. Um, right. Well, and it was also, it, it was basically st- stop doing this stuff while, while we, while we, you know, engage in judicial review of these actions. And his response was basically, no, I'm not going to stop doing that stuff. So he was held in contempt. And so that's what he was ultimately, uh, was he was ultimately convicted of was he was convicted of, of continuing to, to, to do that despite court order. And so, uh, so yeah, I, well, I think, I think the, the, not to nitpick or anything, but we're all lawyers here. So why not? Yeah. <laughs> That's what we do. Right. Uh, I, well, I think the initial injunction was specifically because as the, the, the sheriff's office was, uh, sued to stop, uh, racially profiling Latino drivers specifically. Right. Uh, and uh, yeah, like Sam said, there was a preliminary injunction that issued from federal courts, uh, and and he basically said, we're not going to stop. He was defiant in the face of that, that injunction. So it's really, I think the reason the, the sort of respectable media is so suddenly concerned about the issue is because, you know, defying a court uh, you know, yeah. lies in the face of respect for institutions. And, and, and of course, the, the nature of what he's ultimately, what he was ultimately convicted of is, is important for, for a couple of reasons. The biggest one, of course, is the fact that he has just been uh, the recipient of a presidential pardon, right? And so that's significant because following a, a string of Supreme Court cases, most notably uh, Burdick v. United States in 1915, uh, the court said that a person who, is, who receives a presidential pardon carries an imputation of guilt for the underlying offense and accepting the pardon amounts to a confession of that offense. And so it, it, it's, it's important to, to understand what he was convicted of, because if he's convicted of, of defying a court order and, and a confession of defying that court order is tantamount to an admission that the court was right in its, uh, in its, in its ultimate decision that what he was doing was, was constitutionally impermissible, then what he's, what I think that he's basically done is, is that's an admission that what he was doing was wrong from the beginning. And so my question then is, do y'all think that this could open him up to uh, civil liability for claims? uh, Well, I I think um, depending on, right. So, so accepting the pardon is is essentially an admission that um, he violated the the preliminary injunction, which required him to instruct his, his deputies, you know, the sheriffs uh, for the County to, uh, you know, stop racially profiling Latino drivers. Mm -hmm. But by, by, so by refusing to do that, he's essentially saying, no, we, we are going to continue to do that in defiance of the court order. So if you're part of that class of drivers who's been stopped by uh, a sheriff in that county, um, yeah, I mean, if if you're a if you're a Section 1983 attorney, you're lining up down the street to file that lawsuit because yeah. because you have a per se admission from right. uh, from the government that there's a pattern of practice, which is typically the hardest thing to prove in those cases. Right, uh, right, and even without that admission, he's cost uh, he cost the county millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars in violating people's uh, rights and in, in, uh, in payout for lawsuits. And in fact, that's the reason that he overwhelmingly lost his reelection bid uh, campaign was uh, because the conservatives who don't give a shit about human rights uh, in his district um, were, were mad at him for costing the county so much money. Well, the, the other thing that I think is interesting is that uh, by this admission, he's, he's basically admitting to 
committing an intentional act, right? And so qualified immunity for, for law enforcement is going to extend to most acts of, of ordinary negligence, right? And so what we have here is a willful uh, uh, willful refusal to follow a court order, which of course is an intentional act, which, uh, which would get around qualified immunity in most cases. And so that's why I think that the, the civil liability is interesting because I don't think that qualified immunity is going to be a shield in this instance. I don't know if y'all have any experience uh, engaged in litigation with law enforcement or, or, uh, or the city or counties in general, but uh, what do y'all think of, of, of that? Well, I think it's 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 still going to be case by case, but mm-hmm. I mean, if, if yeah, I mean, qualified immunity becomes a lot harder because the the elements of qualified immunity are that you know the, the law has to be fairly well settled, um, the officer has to be has to have like be reasonably aware of the the of the nature of the law in question, um, the applicable constitutional uh, contours of, of how the law is applied, um, and you know. All, all, all these different elements to determine whether qualified immunity applies. If, in essence, the Maricopa County uh, government, through Arpaio's acceptance of this pardon, is admitting that there is a pattern or practice of discrimination, it's hard to see how a qualified immunity defense would work, right? Yeah. Because yeah. because they're they're saying that at least Arpaio is saying that in those cases, up until he he left office and um, up until uh, at least up until the injunction issued or he accepted the pardon um, that he was aware he had to have been aware because the the injunction specifically instructed him on how to how to uh, reform the practice and he defied it so um, that really cuts the legs out from any qualified immunity in in my reading yeah that's 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 precisely what i was thinking go ahead I, I question this premise that a court would really see a um, an uh, acceptance of a pardon as guilt. I mean, I know there is verdict, but you have so many other situations in which pardons are granted, either on the assumption that the person was like wrongfully convicted, and it's just a um, you know a way that the president can fix that problem, uh, or you have you know the the problem of just situation where it's unclear whether the person was wrongfully convicted and the, the president issues a pardon. Right. Um, and so I just think that for a court to say per se that the acceptance of a pardon is admission of guilt would be to, I think, kind of willfully allied the reasons that pardons are given uh, in other situations. Right. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, there, there's there's certainly a distinction between like a pardon and a commutation. Right. Uh, and so why why issue a pardon when you could have issued a commutation if you intended for the uh, for the guilt to stick? Right. And then, of course, there's uh, there's the decision that came out before verdict and uh, verdict in uh, 1866, uh, the Garland decision which basically said the opposite of verdict that uh, that it basically sets the person in a position as if the uh, the the offense had never occurred if the conviction had never occurred and so verdict uh, I think uh, is is probably the the sharpest case on point it's also the case that uh, that uh, Gerald Ford uh, referenced whenever he pardoned Nixon that uh, that he had done the right thing in pardoning Nixon because he had not absolved Nixon of the guilt uh, for uh, colluding in the uh, in the Watergate break-in. And so uh, I think it's probably uh, less clear than perhaps I, I, I made it seem, but I think based on plain reading of Burdick, it seems like the intent is not to to erase the guilt. Uh, now, different states have, have stepped in, and so gubernatorial pardon power is different than presidential power and may have a, a further reach uh, in, in Texas, for instance, I've, I've never done pardon work before, but I, I was reading a discussion uh, between other Texas criminal defense lawyers on the TCDLA uh, message board. And, and some seem to be of the opinion that you can expunge a gubernatorial pardon, which basically does mean that you erase the underlying guilt, you're erasing the underlying, uh, the underlying conviction. Uh, I'm just not sure it's quite as clear in the, uh, well, in the presidential context. Right. I mean, here the here the it's interesting because it's a contempt conviction that he's he's had that he's been pardoned for, right? And mm-hmm. the contempt conviction specifically has to do with his failure to implement the terms of the injunction. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, a failure to in- implement and it, since the terms of the injunction deal with 
um, reforming a pattern of practice, that would seem to me to be, uh, you know, Sam's right, of course, that, that I suppose they could argue, well, he, he's not saying that they didn't uh, implement the terms. The court is just being unreasonable or something and saying that he hasn't implemented the terms of the injunction. But I haven't read anything to that effect. My understanding was that he was defying it. Uh, he was defying implementing those reforms. And if you're defying implementing, you know, pattern of practice reforms, you're and there's a pattern of practice. And that right. takes a heavy off. In any case, it has to make those Section 1983 attorneys happy one way or the other. Most definitely. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I, you know, I actually um, recently read um, an op-ed in New York Times written by Martin Reddish, uh, apparently a constitutional law professor somewhere. I'm not sure where. <laughs> uh, but he's making he made uh, an interesting argument that is uh, very likely to go nowhere. But uh, but he wants he sees this as a situation that would actually put a limit on, you know, the Constitution grants the president uh extremely you know it's uh, on its face unlimited pardoning power that can he can the the president can pardon anyone um anywhere anytime for anything and the only um uh, limitation on that or the only redress for uh, uh a bad one is impeachment uh this uh, uh reddish argues that um in sheriff joe arpaio's case he was uh violating he was found by a, a court uh to be violating people's constitutional rights. Uh, he was given an injunction to comply with the constitutional requirements that the government not violate people's constitutional rights. Uh, and then he violated that, um, that, uh, that court order and then was con uh, convicted of contempt of court, was being sentenced, and he's now being pardoned of, of that. So uh, Reddish's argument is that if a court is not able to enforce uh, if the judicial branch is unable to uh, enforce its edict that uh, a member of the executive branch um, has violated people's constitutional rights, then it has no ability to um, ensure the that people that the executive branch complies with um, people's con uh, uh, with you know abiding by the constitution. And so, Reading the constitutional's uh, uh, constitutional pardon power in such a way that grants the executive office the ability to undermine constitutionality, uh, compliance with the constitution in the first place, is um, incoherent. And the and the, that pardon power should be read to be limited, such that uh, the president cannot pardon Jeff Arpaio, I mean uh, Joe Arpaio, for this particular act. There's no precedent for that. And he admits that there's no precedent for that. And it's not going to actually go anywhere. But I thought it was an interesting argument. That's that that, that would uh, that would set the stage for like Marbury versus Madison, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it would. Well, our, our buddy, our buddy, Joe Dunman, uh, who's an attorney who was on our last episode, he, he made a post that, that basically said, you got two options uh, with respect to presidential pardon power. You can either elect better presidents or you can amend pardon power. And, and I, I, I'm basically fundamentally opposed to the, to the notion of, of, of amending pardon power. I think that, uh, that pardon power is traditionally used for, for very good purposes. Like it's, it's used in, in very sympathetic cases, uh, it's usually, I mean, when, when Obama, you know, was, was making his pardons, of course he com he commuted, uh, Chelsea Manning sentence, but he also pardoned quite a few low level drug offenders. Uh, and, and that's tends to be where, where pardons are, are used more regularly. Uh, death penalty cases where, where the, there are questions about, you know, DNA and things like that after appellate remedies have been exhausted and, uh, and you no longer have the ability in Texas, for instance, to file, uh, an inexhaustible amount of writs. You get one shot at a writ after your appellate remedies are exhausted. And so, uh, gubernatorial pardon power kind of steps in and acts as that final bulwark against, uh, very, limited uh remedies post convict very limited post conviction remedies and so i would be but this uh, is a go ahead this this is a very different question than i think the ordinary criminal context because this is specifically about the uh the pardon for criminal contempt and not other types of like criminal offenses i don't right. think that this separation of powers argument 
if we accepted it, would limit the ability, the good parts of pardons, right? I think it would only limit it in the context where it raises this kind of fundamental constitutionality issue, mm-hmm. which is solely in the idea of civil rights-based um, injunctions. I mean, like you can imagine the same thing. If this goes forward, Trump could go ahead and restart the travel ban. And then what is anyone going to do? The best that the court could do would be contempt. And then there's another pardon and it keeps running. Right. Yeah, I, I, that, that's an, that's definitely an excellent point. I, I mean, I think that that obviously contempt orders are sort of a different animal from like uh, your ordinary, you know, burglary or murder or something like that. I mean, this is this is clearly a court has already stepped in the middle of what you were doing and said stop it, and you didn't. And so, uh, so yeah, I definitely think that there's there's a distinction to be made there. Um, I'm just not sure that that uh, a, you know contempt of court is necessarily um, more odious than say the Watergate break-ins, uh, which mm-hmm. were you know orchestrated by a, a sitting president. Uh, but I'm just not sure that I would want to make a distinction for the purposes of pardon power. I mean, I, I think that 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 you know. The, the point I think Joe Dunman was trying to make was that like, hey, we just need to, to have better people running, you know, better people, you know, using that power. Uh, right. and, <laughs> and and that's the solution is, is to, you know, not not elect overt white supremacists in the future. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think, you know, it's again back to like one L year um, you know, when they told us bad facts make bad law. Yeah, um, I, I tend to ag- I tend to agree that that generally the pardon power is is probably used for good. Although I'm sure if we if we were to make a spreadsheet of them, we'd find a lot of like financial crimes being excused. By oh yeah, mm, I'm sure. Um, uh, and you know I think Sam raises a good case that you could make. You, you don't need to necessarily make a bright line rule. You can say when there's ongoing constitutional violations. Um, and a contempt order has been issued, the, the president can't issue a pardon that essentially permits ongoing constitutional violations because that is a separation of powers issue. It's a deeper constitutional problem. You know, it is kind of Marbury-esque where you're essentially saying this is a backdoor around judicial <clears throat> independence and the court's ability to uh, interpret and defend, for lack of a better word, the Constitution. That sort of power, if the presidential pardon power was indeed meant to permit ongoing constitutional violations, uh, then the Constitution is meaningless. I, I think right. that's I think that's an excellent point, and, and you're right. I think that it, that if we were to amend presidential pardon power somehow, which which would require an, an amending the Constitution essentially, and I'm not sure we could ever get to a point where where that's possible. Uh, uh, oh, I mean, the Republicans certainly probably could after the next midterms, uh, <laughs> which would be disastrous. Yeah, after they but, uh, gain some more seats. But, um, but yeah, I think that there's certainly some limiting principles that could be applied to where, like, presidential pardon power can't be used to undermine the document that gives the president this power to begin with. So, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I think that's and, definitely and, yeah, right. And that would, I, think that, I think that Sam was right. That that, that would be uh, Marbury v. Madison, too. That would be, like... Uh, you know, such a major precedent to be set on on this issue. I don't I don't think the court would even be willing to hear the argument, honestly. The Supreme Court anyway. So Sam and Ramsen, uh, you guys wrote uh, uh, an article on Medium called uh, "Do the Do the Process: A Legal Analysis of the NPC's Removal Powers," and this is all done uh, one with respect to uh, Danny Fatante, uh, who is uh, who is uh, who is on the NPC, of course, for the DSA, and on, also on the NPC for the DSA. Yeah, and maybe it'd be good to back up and give a little. Um, like you know, a little more background on the on that whole situation. Of, of course, and and also you wrote the article in response to uh, to an article by uh, Sean uh, Monahan, 
that uh, titled Danny should resign, but we need due process. And so b- before we dig in there, um, I-, I wanted to say a couple things about uh, Futante. Uh, Kevin is obviously a, a much more involved uh, DSA member than I am. Um, I-, I pay my dues and, and-, and not much else. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sam and Rams and you guys are clearly more active as well. Um, but I-, I wanted to say a couple things. Uh, one, um, I knew friends in uh in the austin uh iso uh and i i don't know if they've migrated to the dsa as well but i know that they were in the iso and that they had a lot of contact with danny uh they've said uh, a lot of good things about danny they've said that uh he's one of the most uh committed community activists uh that they've ever been in contact with that he's inexhaustible uh in his uh, defense of labor rights and workers uh and that he is a an asset to any organization he's involved with any organization he's involved with and i don't think that um that many of us are necessarily disputing that i know i'm certainly not disputing uh, what a good uh, community organizer he's been, what a good you know labor activist he's been. Uh, I think that the folks in Austin are generally right in all of the praise that they've uh, that they've heaped upon. Yeah. Uh, I've heard I've heard many of the same things myself, yeah, that they've heaped upon Danny's record. Uh, however, uh, when Danny initially ran for the NPC and did not make it, he had disclosed previously, that he did work uh, for Cleet, uh, which is uh, basically a, a Texas police union. He had mentioned previously that he had that he had been part of Cleet, uh, and he lost he lost that bid for the MPC. This time, when he ran in a sort of evolving, um, leftward shifting climate, he uh, decided to rather than disclose that he had worked for Cleet. He decided to disguise that work as uh, being, um, what did he say? That he had worked with a public employees uh, union or something. Organized like that state workers. Organized yeah. organized state workers. So that was that was how he elected to uh, to phrase his work with Cleet, which I think is uh, is is pretty clearly an obfuscation of what he was doing, uh, and and it's intentional. And I understand why he did it. Um, and I yeah, think- yeah, it's specifically, in fact, uh, Stephen, what is your experience or like, you know, can you being that you deal with police in Texas, you know, do you have any experience with Cleet as an organization? Uh, there's an attorney in San Antonio that uh, that that is one of the the attorneys that that Cleet uses anytime law enforcement one is. And so what what Cleet attorneys do is is anytime a, uh, a an officer is um, being investigated, they have uh, sort of internal investigations. Right. And there is a there's an internal hearing and review process. And so attorneys that uh, that work with Cleet will represent the officer in that review period. And uh, what they're trying to do is a couple things. One, they're trying to advocate on behalf of the officer so the officer can, one, stay employed, uh, two, stay you know, paid, and, and three, and, and often most importantly, uh, prevent the uh, suspension of, um, of the T-close license. And the T-close license is what officers in Texas have in order to be able to, uh, to continue being peace officers. And so if uh, San Antonio Police Department, uh, which has, you know, probably the largest cleat representation, uh, certainly in, in San Antonio, maybe even the state, um, when uh, when San Antonio fires an SAPD officer, if they're if the officer still has his T-close license, that officer can go to a, another PD or a sheriff's office or some incorporated city PD and uh, and he can keep working. He can keep being a cop. Uh, but if his T close license gets gets suspended or terminated, revoked, whatever, then then he can no longer go be a cop uh, unless he can somehow restore his T close license some uh, somehow in the future. When there and there are ways to do that, I believe. Um, which yeah, which um, my understanding from talking to some folks in Texas is that this is one of the major problems. Uh, with being able to control bad acting police is they get in trouble, then they just hop to a new, new department and they keep being uh, cops somewhere else doing the same shit they were doing before. Right. And so that's the biggest thing that, that Cleet is really able to do, at least at least from from a legal perspective. Uh, Cleet also, they also has... 
The, the, yeah, well, and, and they also uh, uh, lobbied um, in favor of a bill that would uh, eliminate or, well, uh, restrict tort liability for automobile drivers who run over uh, protesters in the street. And and so what, what Cleet, Cleet does, aside from just uh, straight up legal representation, is they also do things like collective bargaining, the, the, the stuff that, uh, that, you know, you wish every union had the power to do. They negotiate contracts with the city. Uh, with the county, depending on you know how they're representing the officers in particular, uh, or, or the, uh, the 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 police force or the sheriff's office. If uh, I don't think Cleet does a lot of sheriff's offices, but uh, but at any rate, they 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 handle the collective bargaining agreements, contract with the cities, things like that. They're the ones that get to uh, have a lot of power in determining how officers are disciplined, how office and and what is the. Uh, community redress for uh, for for bad officers, and so as a result, uh, police unions tend to be the strongest union force in uh, in the United States. I guess I can't think of anything. Well, yeah, <laughs> well, and, I, and especially I, in Texas, where like that's the only union uh, conservatives want to attack. Yeah, for for example, by comparison, public school teacher, teachers in Texas are for, prohibited by law from having collective bargaining agreements, uh, but cops. Cops can have uh, CBAs. Yeah, so uh, so cops have the only uh, decent union in terms of its uh, its power, but it's also uh, not a union because uh, cops are not workers. <laughs> cops <laughs> cops are are, are not uh, are not I'd, I'd quibble over that, but. Well, I, I quibble over the technicalities there, but yeah, I agree with in spirit. I think uh, I think cops are are lumpen. Uh, I think that uh, that if 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 the if the lumpen proletariat analysis has uh, has any merit, then uh, it, it should be applied the- towards it should be applied towards <laughs> cops. Uh, but Fair we enough. can we can talk about that later. But um, so yeah, so that's 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 the main thing um, about Danny Vitante that I wanted to get out. One that that he has a lot of um, of well intentioned and probably correct defenders, uh, at least in terms of like his character and uh he did a job that accomplished a lot of bad things uh and i think that he may have been well-intentioned in being part of it and may have even been successful in achieving some reforms at the local level where he was involved uh but i don't think that that um that makes up for, for necessarily what he did now. Right. Well, there's, I mean, I, th- I feel like there's a couple, there's two people, two camps of, uh, objections to what, you know, the, what he did, which is, you know, some people, uh, feel that just because he worked for Cleet period, uh, that is, uh, he should be removed for that. Uh, there are other people who feel that he alighted the democratic, uh, deliberation the process of de- democratic deliberation over the relevance of this fact by hiding it in his campaign. Uh, and clearly intentionally, because like you mentioned before, in 2015, he listed Cleet as in, in his um, campaign materials. In 2017, uh, he removed it and disguised it as, I organized state workers. Uh, that That is, uh, I think that that clearly demonstrates the intentional part. But um, but yeah, I mean, there's two different uh, objections. One is that he, that he worked for Cleet. The other objection is that he undermined the ability of the, dele- the body of delegates from having a democratic deliberation on the relevance of the fact that he worked for Cleet. Um, and I, uh, I, I want to jump in and throw that there's a couple other wrinkles to this that have come out since then. Yeah, please. Uh, which, which is that... Uh, you know, I, I don't think there's any dispute that uh, Danny Patante is a great uh, organizer, but I think someone can be a great soldier for the cause, a terrible master. And it's also come out that the way that he's been running the Austin branch has been um, despotic, that the, they do not have bylaws that allow for the existence of any other uh, officers besides the co-chairs, that he... Um, has at the meeting that was recorded that a lot of the uh, DSA people have been able to access and see what the meeting that he held on himself controlling the mic looked like. Uh, Mm -hmm. He doesn't do any kind of stack. He doesn't allow for any kind of input. And he's just now proposed changes to their bylaws that would extend his term to two years uh, that would um, also make it that no one could raise issues at a meeting unless they had been uh, given to him one month prior to the meeting. Jeez. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. 
it's uh, the thing is, is I think when we started this, a, a lot of people were, you know, made very unfair assumptions about um, Katante that he has uh, apparently proved all true. That that, that we were <laughs> we were right in our unfair assumptions that um, he is uh, behaving in a way that is uh, undemocratic within his own chapter, vis-a-vis the uh, the national uh, in terms of the election uh, and just the general way that he has. Uh, carried himself through the controversy. Yeah, he's certainly uh, as, not done himself any favors. Right. Um, and so uh, that's part of, I think, I think there is a fascinating uh, theoretical discussion about, you know, uh, our cops workers and what should be the role of fleet. But it, it appears to me that the more relevant set of objections is, is he in his capacity as an officer and right. as the leader's chapter, and uh, is is he uh, intentionally acting badly for uh, his own goals above those of the organization? Right, which actually which brings us exactly to the point of your article, which I uh, I really 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 personally appreciated that contribution. Uh, Sean Monahan um, previously produced an article arguing that um, he felt that Danny uh, should resign, but he didn't feel that the NPC, which is the leader, you know, whatever, it's the uh, elected leadership body of, of DSA, uh, he doesn't feel that it uh, that it does or should have the power to remove Danny if he won't voluntarily resign. Um, and I should mention that we're, as we record this, we're sort of in between a decision by NPC about whether to uh, uh, to use, try to use this power or not, because he is at this point refused to resign, and uh, they're deliberating on whether to use this power very soon. And we're not sure when that decision is going to be made, but uh, likely when people are listening to this, that decision may have already been made. Um, but yeah, so Sean was arguing um, that it it shouldn't be used, and in fa- in fact, uh, what uh, brought raised the concern that um, a possible lawsuit could be brought to force. Uh, DSA to comply with what he read to be, um, you know, its own constitution and bylaws that does not grant NPC the power to remove Danny. Um, and hence, uh, Sam and Ramsen, y'all's um, uh, Medium uh, article responding. Um, could you um, lay out the issues? Well, like many things, um, this article started as the result of a fight on Twitter, uh, <laughs> where, uh, you know, uh, I had sort of interjected my ideas about, uh, you know, that that the NPC should be stepping up to remove him. And um, somebody very condescendingly was like, well, perhaps if you'd written something longer, I would have considered it. But in the meantime, I'm going to refer to Sean's analysis. And I was like, Jesus. wait, this, this is the analysis that all the cooler heads, so to speak, in DSA have been... Uh, saying is, well, you know, the law just says that our hands are tied here and there's nothing we can do. And I started to take a look at it. I'm like, oh my God, this is really, really bad reasoning. And, and I guess because it was the first thing out there, um, it's what people glommed onto as being an Uh accurate reading. But, um, you know, when I started to go through the constitution, um, and through the, the substance of the reasoning in the article itself, it was just bad statutory interpretation, right. first and foremost. And I also think that it was being used as a cover to um, you know, avoid having to deal with the issue. It seemed like it was a, a, a philosophical problem with leadership as well, of wanting to have some kind of mechanism that would absolve them from having to make, take a stand on something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yes. then uh, Ramson uh, sent me a, uh, a DM and, uh, and uh, we just got started on it uh, overnight. Yes. Yeah. We had an article. So you're all going to shop um, this around to like, you know, Harvard Law Review. Like it's well cited. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure Harvard Law will be very interested in our <laughs> You know, I, I think one of the things that, that you know, when um, Sam and I were kind of first uh, talking about this piece and, and then when we first started collaborating on it was one thing that jumps out at me and something that kind of irks me generally and especially when I'm dealing with with uh, clients or potential clients and stuff is um, uh, the folk understanding of law and how it's often used you know it's like people who say you know if you're a cop you have to tell me you know it's like yeah that's, that's 
that's not real. It's not, it's not true. <laughs> uh, uh, but that, but you, you find that even among, you know, supposedly sophisticated people in the business world, yeah. world and government, where they'll, they'll say, oh, well, yeah, but, you know, I, I've heard that such and such. So, you know, we don't have to worry about that. It's like, that's, folk understanding of the law is very dangerous. Yeah. And uh, for me, there was just some of that in, in Sean's piece. Um, and, you know, I, I, I like Sean. None of this is personal, of course, but. Um, you know, there, there was just yeah. some of that, that type of folk reasoning in there, especially when it came to stuff about due process. And it's, it's one of the things we focused on. That we wanted people to understand that, that the phrase due process doesn't mean, as we know, best process or ideal process or constitutional process. Mm-hmm. The word who in due process means the process that's owed, the way courts determine. And we took a deep dive into the case law. Right courts determine what process is due when it comes to membership associations um, is is extremely uh, fact dependent on the bylaws and constitution and on the authorizing statutes non stock corporations and and, uh, and there's a lot of First Amendment um, issues that are entailed which I think would probably be of the most interest to your listeners which is that you know the, the First Amendment freedom of association has a dormant right to not associate. Um, mm. Right. That's been fairly well litigated. Uh, people, you know, it's interesting in the case law, one of the one of the main cases we relied on, um, uh, Davenport versus Society of the Cincinnati, uh, you know, a lot of these cases have to do with like genealogical groups or like uh, sort of like, uh, you know, sons of the American Revolution type groups. That's what the uh, Society of the Cincinnati is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's some sort of social honor to be had being part of these groups where people sued not excluded and courts have basically said people have to be given the right to associate really not associate whoever they like um, and so long as the process uh, that um, organization has is reasonably applied and reasonable in its terms so you know anytime somebody throws out oh we're at risk of a lawsuit um, that's that's a good cudgel to use to get people to get scared and say oh we can't do anything. We're frozen with litigation. Mm-hmm. But the, the reality is that the case law is pretty favorable. In that case, Davenport versus Society of Cincinnati, uh, what was at issue was a guy who was in this organization copied a genealogical chart pamphlet. Uh, you know, he wasn't supposed to, and he was expelled by the leadership on the grounds that he. Uh, um, the engaging conduct is not essentially becoming of a gentleman. Uh, <laughs> of this right, because uh, in, in that case, the, the constitution or bylaws of the organization that he was in said that a person could be removed from uh, on the basis of, of violating this rule, right? Right. The, the, the Society of Cincinnati goes back to the 18th century. And so there was language in their bylaws that said uh, conduct inconsistent with a gentleman and a man of honor uh, is grounds for expulsion. Um, and the guy sued and said, well, what does that mean, gentleman and man of honor? And the court said, well, it essentially means whatever the organization says it means, so long as it's given a reasonable reading. Um, and they look to the dictionary definition and they look to Shakespeare's use of the phrase man of honor. In the way <laughs> Cassius is referred to by Mark Antony or something. Um, and, uh, and, you know, they, they kind of looked at the common language use and said, you know, so long as, as the as the process is is reasonable, you know, there's a hearing. Parties have notice of the hearing, um, and so long as the, the interpretation of the words is reasonable, then we're not going to interfere because the courts can't micromanage membership associations and who they choose to associate with. And keep in mind that this is that was an expulsion case. Mm-hmm. Uh, here we have somebody who uh, is is putting a claim on entitlement to a leadership position. Right, which is even sort of lower, more beneath the uh, interest of a court. Mm-hmm. You know, um, e- expulsion being a more serious uh, uh, remedy than um, you know denial of leadership position, uh, which is a privilege more than it is a right, even under uh, even under any statutory uh, authorizing. And, and a lot of the article deals with this idea that the standard for removal from the NPC must be a very, uh, a high degree of misconduct. 
And within the constitution of DSA, that's not, that's not support. I mean, this is a point that we don't make in the, uh, the article. Uh, so bonus for your listeners, uh, <laughs> but that um, there is, there is an expulsion provision within the DSA constitution for somebody who consistently engages in undemocratic or disruptive fa- uh, behavior um, or if they were under the discipline of any self-defined democratic centralist organization, right? Like you can be expelled from DSA for being undemocratic, full stop. Um, and the the bar seems to be pretty low there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, consistent democratic behavior. And the bar in the uh, removal provision for NPC is even lower. It's just malfeasance. And one of those folk understandings of the law that Ramson was saying he found frustrating, that I found frustrating as well, was um, Sean's assertion that malfeasance must be uh, something especially egregious, Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. when really it's a term that refers to the mens rea of the offense. Um, And by the way, I should say that Sean Moynihan's article um, was clearly in good faith, and I think that... Yeah, and and uh, no no personal um, disrespect for him, uh, even though I, as many lawyers do, get very heated when we're talking about <laughs> the interpretation of rules. Um, but anyways, the this idea that it's a mens rea requirement, reading the Constitution as a whole and the removal provision, um, it really does seem to be that the idea behind removal was to ensure the smooth functioning of the NPC. That's why they also have a removal provision for missing two consecutive meetings for an unexcused absence, right? Um, you don't have to be new Stalin uh, to, <laughs> to be removed from, from the NPC. Um, you just have to um, have some malfeasance and you have to have two thirds of the NPC finding that malfeasance is hampering significantly the organization. And I think that, um, you know, this is sort of where the, the input from the rank and file members, I think, is a relevant data point mm-hmm. um, because, you know, you have uh, multiple working groups, multiple chapters issuing statements um, about Patante, um, the possibility of a due strike uh, by thousands of members. Um, and so, um, and in addition, the uh, the disruptive and undemocratic behavior um, and the malfeasance within his own chapter um, I think this is a real threat to the NPC that they would be well within their rights under the Constitution to uh, to take action on. So uh, one of the one well one of the questions um, that I've found um, I think the argument that I've found to be the most persuasive is their argument about uh, a sort of post hoc application of a rule. Um, and you address this in your article. Could you uh, explain? Um, uh, that uh, how you see acts committed before holding office may be relevant to malfeasance determination. Yeah, um, and, and Ramson can also speak on this because uh, he added some I think the most nuanced analysis of this. But that where the statute is silent as to what the malfeasance is, the the, the standard does seem to be relevance. Right, this would be. Um, it seems like the kind of bizarre gotcha way that people assume the law works to say, well, technically I wasn't on the NPC yet, therefore you can't do anything. I think that that would be an absurd interpretation of the rule, especially where the malfeasance relates to the, uh, the process by which he got on the NPC. Right. Um, and it's this broader issue of that, you know, where I think that the whole idea of having these rules figured out beforehand is that, of course, we don't know what the situation is they're going to be applied in, but that it's the job of leadership to interpret the rule as written and not on their own decide that it was poorly written uh, or gives too much power to the NPC, and therefore they're not going to do it, which is, I think, the, the objection that I'm hearing most often is that they're afraid of a wave of purges for some kind of ideological purity resulting if they should go ahead and use this provision. Right. I, I, I... And and I, I think these are all sort of interrelated. There, there's a, there's a chain of interrelated questions there. So when people are raising this chronological issue, where they say something that happened, how can something that happened before somebody's on the NPC count as malfeasance? That's grounds for removal from the NPC. Well, if you engage in malfeasance to get on the NPC, that would seem to be germane. Uh, whereas you know it, it, it's germane because 
it's 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 linked to um, it's linked to the person being on the NPC. It's linked right. to their NPC. Right. That was the whole office. purpose of the. <laughs> right. uh, yeah, that was why he did it. Right, and so to say that, oh well, you you know, uh, to to sort of relate it to this again, folk understanding of the law of there shall be no, there shall be no, uh, you know, post post hoc uh, um, uh, laws. Um, that's the rule is not post hoc. The rule exists. Uh, the right. rule has existed since at least 2011. Um, so uh, the rule is there. It's it's what what people are really saying is, well, do we? This is a post hoc. This is an after the fact. Uh, interpretation, but you you typically only interpret a rule when you're applying it uh, very often, right? Even the federal rules that are issued in relation to a statute, you know, um, you know, they are meant to give guidance, but they're not set in stone. Um, you know, the courts apply the rules when a certain fact pattern arises. Well, and that's so pretty much the only time you can apply the rules. I mean, uh, unless you're unless you're getting advisory opinions, you know, every every time you tr- you you think about trying to do something, the only time you can apply the rule is is after something has a, has occurred to bring about a desired result. Exactly. Yeah. And so that that also links. So you know, we what we argue there is that you know a chronological limitation. Is, is arbitrary, whereas a relevance uh, uh, a, a relevance requirement is 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 not. And also, the, the relevance issue also speaks to the remedy, right? Because the the question is, okay, well, uh, if if we are worried about this this wave of purges, as Sam put it, um, you know, then <laughs> yeah, then why don't then the remedy is to amend the rule. And we can amend the rule at the next convention just as easily as at the next convention delegates can vote in a new NPC. There's no real difference between, you know, the the remedies are the same. So when you say, well, the the right thing to do now because we don't want to have this this after the fact interpretation is to just wait till 2019 and elect a new NPC. But you could say the same thing for the rule, right? Well, okay, if we're worried about the rule, we can just wait till 2019 and amend the rule to make it more specific and, and include a relevance requirement or a chronological requirement or whatever requirement we'd like. Um, you know, the, mm-hmm. there, uh, you know, Sean in his piece argues uh, essentially for uh, waiting till 2019 to, because the right thing to do to make it more fair would be to just, you know, vote him out. But the, the same goes for the rule. If we're worried about, um, how this rule could be abused, then let's fix the rule. In, in fact, right. we're going to end up fixing the rule probably in any case after all this, right? So yeah. uh, um, the argument for the one also applies as equally to the argument. Exactly. Right. And, and I, the I, idea that... Oh, oh sorry. No, there was ahead, just this line that Ram- Ramson had in the article that I, uh, that I thought was great, which is precedent in this context is a norm, not a destiny, right? That mm-hmm. we are not... Um, we're not slavishly bound uh, even by the whole idea of like stare decisis. Mm-hmm. If, if the rule starts having um, absurd consequences, we, we not only have the ability to amend the rules of the, the next convention, but because this is a membership organization, um, I do think that it's, it's a fine and good thing to have some amount of, um, uh, of leeway and that the, right. uh, again, like sort of what we're talking about with um the pardon is, is it's not even just that you need better rules, but that you need better people applying them. And I right. think that insofar as uh, we did elect an NPC to make these kinds of judgments that the con- constitution of the organization explicitly confers on them, that they should not be so afraid of, uh, of their own power um, in, in interpreting the rules and trusting themselves not to start purging each other, for instance, right? Right. Um, I, there's this uh, there's this line um, in uh, I just read October the uh, the history of the the Russian Revolution. There's this part where um, Victor Chernoff, who is one of the uh, revolutionaries um, who is in favor of uh, the Soviets not taking control, um, he goes out to quell an angry mob of uh, of Bolsheviks, and rather than uh, calm them down they end up grabbing him by the throat and shaking him and saying, take power when it's given to you, you son of a bitch. (laughs) (laughs) And I I, I feel like that's, you know, I'm not exactly asking for all power to the, to the NPC. Uh, Quite the opposite. (laughs) I 
I would love it if they could go back to being irrelevant. Um, <laughs> but, but I think in this context, they do have to step up. Well, I think that, uh, the, uh, the discussion of malfeasance aside, um, I think the most interesting, uh, argument that y'all address in this article is, uh, the, the possibility or probability of, uh, of litigation, uh, with respect to removing Fatante. I mean, that's, that's sort of the reason a lot of people do or do not do things, you know, to begin with is fear of, of litigation, particularly in organizations, uh, businesses, things like that. They don't want to do anything that is going to open them up to, to lawsuits. And I think y'all did a great job in the article of kind of explaining why this was one, not likely. And two, if it did result in litigation was not going to be uh, resolved in his favor, in Danny's favor. Um, because, and it's something we also talked about in the last episode, uh, with respect to, uh, churches and excommunication of, uh, of, of, of parishioners, right. Of people from the flock, uh, courts don't want to step in and, and mediate the disputes between, you know, members of private organizations. They just don't want to do that. And, and you raise an excellent point that this is not an issue of expulsion where you know he's being deprived of of some right of free association, but rather this is a a leadership position that he has no entitlement to, uh, and courts are just simply not. I, mean, I don't see how a claim that he should be uh, entitled to remain on the NPC survives uh, summary judgment. Yeah, it, it would it, it it would definitely this would definitely be a summary judgment situation right both because the, the the remedy for the for the um for the membership association is, is relatively uh, mild which is like you don't get to be a leader of this huge organization right um but also because uh again it's 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 like you said courts are so loath to get um uh in the middle of these disputes and 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 the 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 process that they uh, is, is a, a reasonable process. You know, um, th they spell it out in these cases. Davenport is one, Falcone is another one. Um, and basically what they say is, look, unless, unless the association is one of economic necessity, right? So if, if unless it's a bar association, right. you have a lot of cases that are like the central Oklahoma orthodontist society or whatever, uh, you know, where like being a member of it gives you certain economic privileges and, allows you to apply your trade unless it's something like that we're essentially not going to get involved unless we see that the association is flouting the uh, an enabling statute of the state or that there's such irregularity in application of its own rules that there's there's something fishy there right, right. so you know if this if the membership association essentially ignored its own rules or uh, you know there was clearly a pattern of bad conduct or something um, mm -hmm. but if it's a question of what does malfeasance really mean, you know, all these sort of like chin on your fist, uh, uh, you know, philosophical questions, um, you know, they're, you know, if, if it's stuff like that, they're just, it's, it's beneath a court's uh, competency essentially to get involved. Um, the, uh, the process that they require when they say the process that's due is the process of basic, uh, basic fairness. So notice of a hearing, sorry, you can hear my dog. Uh, no, no, notice of the hearing, um, a right to be present, um, a right to present, uh, a right to present your case and, and uh, a right to hear the evidence against you. Um, and, you know, that's essentially as far as they're going to take it. Well, uh, uh, well, I think that that, um, that about brings us to time. Thank you all so much, uh, Sam Ranzen for, for being willing to come on the show and discuss this with us. Yeah, thanks yeah, guys. Thanks I really so appreciate y'all. Yeah, I appreciate y'all coming on. Uh, anything y'all want to reference, shout out before y'all head out? There is one more thing I would shout out uh, as required reading for everybody. Um, I've reread the Tyranny of Structurelessness, um, a classic yeah. uh, essay in uh, in organizing, and I think that the takeaway for every chapter um, is that everybody needs to have a very uh, a strong internal debate about what their their bylaws are going to be, what their rules are going to be. Every chapter needs to have something in place for removal, um, because you know what's happening here could happen to every chapter, and it is ultimately the existence of rules like this um, that you have to have in place before you need them. Uh, that we should be taking as the lesson from uh, from this fiasco. Right. And we'll yeah. 
we'll definitely link to that in the show notes. I would uh, just just to follow up on that. I would just say that you know the the inverse of hierarchy is clickishness, which uh, <laughs> you know is 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 always, to my mind, much more dangerous. Right. All right. Well, thanks, guys. We really appreciate y'all. Y'all take it easy. Okay. You too. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks.